Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. We've been studying through the, uh, the book of Jeremiah and uh, want to come to a place today where, where we're looking again at this section between chapter 11 and chapter 20. Now, in this section, Jeremiah begins to pour out his heart to God because he, he realizes that as he's doing his ministry, he has got these double crushing forces that are all centered right in his his heart right in his life so he has this relentless justice of God the holiness of God his righteousness and every day God is downloading his word his burden to Jeremiah and then on the other hand he's he's talking to a people who are stubbornly resistant they want nothing to do with the message and their thought is if they can kill the messenger they get rid of the message. And so what we find in these chapters is Jeremiah, instead of complaining to others, he begins to really pour out his heart to the Lord. And we have six lamentation prayers in these chapters. Now, lamentations are bitter, bitter prayers where he is just unloading every bit of the crushing that he has with God. And what we see in this is that God loves it when we don't (laughs) complain about him to others, but we complain to him. And Jeremiah begins to pour out his pain. And the reason this is so significant for us is because if, if you are born again, if you are a true Christ follower, then the holiness of God, the relentless justice of God, the righteousness of God has invaded your life and you can't get away from it. He is relentlessly pure. But you also are living in a stubbornly resistant world. And so you, like Jeremiah, cannot avoid God's heart for this family you're from or this community you're from or the people that you care about. And even though they are resistant and stubborn, yet you know His holiness, you know His righteousness, And you find yourself, if you're not closing your eyes and closing your heart, you find yourself crushed by this reality. And so what we find is that as Jeremiah is unpacking his pain, he actually helps us to understand how to overcome the crushing in our own life. And the first is this, is to realize that that God, when he becomes intimate with you, shares his burden with you. That the word of the Lord who came to the prophet in Hebrew is called the burden of the Lord. And that our God is revealing, He's not an it. It's not a thing. He's not just spirit. He is a person. And He reveals a brokenheartedness about the lostness and about the unholiness and the unrighteousness of this world that He's created. He makes an analogy that you and I must understand. So many people have such a low view of sin and idea, well, why is he so upset? And yet, when God explains what's going on, he's saying, you haven't just broken my law, you have broken my heart. Because he says, I'm like a husband. And you're the wife I always wanted. You're the bride. 
And I've given you everything that I am. I've given you everything that I've had. But instead of being faithful to me, you have run after other lovers. So when you think about your sin, if you think about it in terms of God's perspective, sin is the same as if a husband has a wife that he loves, but the wife is cheating on him with every other man she can find. Or a wife has a husband that she loves, but the husband is cheating on her with every woman that he can find. And when you look at it that way, you go, how could I be in a relationship with someone so untrustworthy, so unfaithful? And that's what God is speaking about throughout Jeremiah. And so as you become an intimate with God, God honors you. He believes in you more than you believe in yourself. And he begins to allow you living in this world to carry the burden that he carries. He lets you have a taste of his own broken heart. So that the pain in your life is not pain without purpose. As a matter of fact, anything that you're going through, God in his power could have prevented. But in his wisdom, he has allowed it. He has permitted it, and He has a purpose in it. And part of that purpose is for you to stop thinking only of your selfish self. And it begins to say, Lord, if this is your burden, I will carry it. I will carry it because you love me. I will carry it because you are trustworthy. And so instead of always thinking, how do I get out of my pain? How do I distract myself from the pain? How do I numb myself to this pain? The Word of God is saying, will you lean into the pain, not just for your sake, but for the sake of those that God is carrying a burden for to win. But the other thing is this. It's not only an issue that God, in His intimacy with you, wants you to carry His burden with Him, but also He wants you to understand how his justice and how his holiness and righteousness actually work. You see, what happens to many of us when we're treated unfairly or when life seems unjust or cruel or not the way it's supposed to be, we immediately think we're all alone. Oh God, how could this happen to me? How could you let this happen to me? Thinking in a way that because life is unfair, because things aren't going the way I expect them to go, that somehow God has missed the mark or God has missed the ball in this. And we're even often tempted that when injustice happens to us, we will answer with injustice. Or when something cruel happens to us, we'll answer with greater cruelty. If that's not you, you're lying to yourself. When someone's angry with you, the impulse is, I'm going to be more angry. If they yell at me, I will yell at them more. How dare they yell at me? I've even had people come up to me and say, my company is cheating me. They're not paying me what I'm worth, so I steal from them because they owe me. See, it's really easy when you feel like life is unfair or unjust, to then respond with, well, this excuses my injustice. Or this makes a cause for me to act in such a way. And yet here in the Scriptures, what Jeremiah is finding, what God is saying, he's, he's saying this, in your injustice, in the unfairness, I know exactly what you're going through. Who else has ever been treated as unjustly as the Lord Jesus Christ. No one understood his message. 
They lied about him. They slandered him. They killed the innocent one. Every time you think no one is going through what I'm going through, you're listening to a lie. He hasn't forsake you when the world is cruel to you. But He asks you not to run out and try to fix it yourself. Try to be your own Savior. Try to be your own solution. He asks you to wait for Him. You see, when you're going through it, He's holding justice in His hand. And if you'll lean into His justice, if you'll lean into His presence, He's the God who restores what the locusts have eaten. He's the God. He's the God who gives the double portion for your shame. But what happens to so many of us is we can't wait. We have to act. When I first started my doctorate back in the 90s, I was with this group of pastors and uh, we were sharing stories of leadership. And this one pastor began to tell this leadership story that I've never forgotten. He goes, when I went to my church, there was this family, and they were, they were horrible. They were controlling. They were mean to me. They were critical. You know, I don't know if you know this, but every church has controlling people in it. So here's what he said. I went to them, and I said, you're controlling, you're manipulative, you're bad people. You need to leave this church. And he goes, it'd be easier for you to find a new church than it would be to move my family and take a different call. And he looked at us with a big grin on his face and he said, they left. Man, people are stupid. <laughs> Do you know what he did? He fought control with control. So the spirit of control that was behind that family now is controlling the pastor. Because the spirit doesn't care who it controls as long as it keeps control. So he was glad to kick the family out because now he had the pastor. And he was controlling the pastor. Do you understand? When you step in and step out of the umbrella of waiting on God, then what you're doing is you're fighting what is hurting you with what is hurting you. And you will become what they are. You will not have won, you will have lost. But if you will wait patiently on the Lord, if you'll wait for His deliverance, His promises are yes and amen, and He never leaves you or forsakes you. And even while it seems that there's a withholding for a time, the prophetic word again and again is this, but after. After the locusts have eaten. But after the plots have all been unveiled. After. Then I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. After you will have an inheritance. After you will be planted like a tree by the water that never runs out. After. You understand? In other words, you have to go through to get to the after. Why do I have confidence in this? Well, it's not called the book of the people who killed Jeremiah. It's called the book of Jeremiah. Come on. 
I mean, there were plans to kill him. His own village, Anathoth, his, his own family wanted to kill him. But we don't know their names. But we know the name of the one who stood fast. And we know the one who but after. Are you hearing me? I don't... I really believe for some of you, you're going through something today or you will be going through something that you need a but after to recognize that you are not forgotten even when you're being treated in a misunderstanding way or a slanderous way or you're being treated in a betraying way. Whatever it is, God has not forsaken you. The fact that you live in a stubbornly resistant world does not change the relentless justice of God for you and for the but after of your life. But the problem is we struggle to trust him in the midst of those circumstances. And where Jeremiah begins to help us understand this is that he says in chapter 13, verse 23, he said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? See, there is an issue for many of us that what we have as faith is nothing more than an appearance of faith. Where we say we trust God, it's only the appearance of trusting God. And what Jeremiah is teaching us through really the inspiration and revelation of the Holy Spirit is appearances are never enough. Appearances are not what God is about. He's about the heart. And Christianity is an interesting kind of faith. It's not like any other faith that's ever existed because we don't just repent of our bad and shameful things. We repent of our good things because we recognize that even our good things are bad things because the issue isn't the behavior that manifests. The issue is the dependence and the source and the power behind the behavior. So even when you do what seems right, if you have done it out of something other than dependence on God, then it's sin to begin with. If you are only acting out of fear of consequences, the fear itself reveals a lack of intimacy with God. Because wherever God is, God is love. And perfect love always casts out fear. So if you're acting out of fear, you're not acting out of love. So if you're doing something in fear of consequences or punishment, you're not doing it out of love. Because I've never seen in the Bible it says, fear the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And fear your neighbor as yourself. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Fear involves punishment. Punishment means you're still stuck to the law. It means you see God not as your husband, not as your lover or your friend. You see God as the lawgiver and the scorekeeper. And so you're still trying to say, do my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? Here's how you know the difference between a Jesus church and a religious church. In a religious church, everybody's trying to figure out who's the most spiritual here. If I'm more spiritual than them, I probably will go to heaven because they're going to hell. I compare favorably to you, so that must mean I'm okay with God. I actually went to a Christmas pageant at a church where it started at Christmas and ended up at the great white throne judgment, and two members of the church played the father and the son at the judgment seat. 
I would be afraid to do that. <laughs> Even if I had a beard and a white wig on, which they did. And they began to judge people so that everybody in the audience would know who was going to hell and who wasn't. So there were two teenagers that came up on the stage with jeans on, listening to rock music. They went straight to hell. <laughs> two teens came on with perfect haircuts, looking very, very white. I mean, they're looking very... Uh, um, and they had khakis and a plaid shirt and a dress on. They went straight to heaven. If I knew all it took were khakis to get to heaven. Wouldn't that be easy? You understand what's going on there is that's a religious church that hasn't repented of their good. They believe their good is good. And they even define what good is. Because I, I don't know if you can find a Bible verse where it says thou shalt not wear jeans. <laughs> or thou shalt not listen to rock music. You have to make interpretations in order to make that your rules. And by making those rules, then you make yourself better. See, real Jesus people go, we're as bad as everybody else. I mean, one of my favorite things to say to you is, you're just as sick as I am. You're just as broken as I am. You know, when you get there and you realize I'm that broken, then grace is beautiful. See, as long as you're still trying to prop up your goodness, you won't repent. You will resist. But once you realize there's no goodness to prop up, then repentance becomes sweet. See, the other, the other indicative or indication of a not-Jesus church is you only pray when you're in crisis. Only desperation leads you to prayer because there's no intimacy with God. God is just a resource. God is your personal assistant. And so you pray because you're desperate. See, when prayer is your last hope, it means He's not your hope. And so what Jeremiah teaches us is these things of appearances just don't count. God loves, through the circumstances of your life, to blow up your mask and to show you how really mean you are, how really rude you are, how really impatient you are. And all of that He does not to destroy you, but so that you'll, need, you'll know that you need healing. And so as we you know, spend these last moments together here, maybe some of you are the last moments I ever see you. <laughs> I want you to realize something. Over your life and my life, God is sovereign. This is why you can trust Him. He's sovereign over the ultimate choice of every individual. Sovereign over nations, over families, and He can be trusted. But in order to do that, in order to learn to trust Him, you have to learn to understand your own heart. And the one who knows your heart best is not you. It's the one who created your heart. And so I want us to read a passage from, from Jeremiah 17. It's one of the strongest passages in the whole book about the human heart. And I'd like you to read out loud with me, because this is God's word. So let's read together. Thus says the Lord, 
Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, Sorry, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So in order to really find God in your life and to really understand intimacy with God, you've got to know and understand your own heart. Now the heart is not merely your emotions in the Bible. The heart is the control center of your entire being. The heart is where you have the greatest autonomy over anything. It's your heart that decides what you believe. It's your heart that says, I trust this. It's your heart that says, this is my commitment. Your deepest trust, your deepest commitments come from your heart. Now the emotions that come forth are mere expressions or manifestations of what you've chosen to trust. Therefore, and this is what this scripture is teaching, every one of you has the ability for radical trust. And when I say radical, I'm not talking about extreme. I'm talking about radical in the sense of rooted trust. From the day you are born, you are trying to find what you believe in. From the day you're born, you're trying to find what can I trust? Trust is the way every single one of us operates. We operate on the basis of our rooted faith in whatever we believe. So, every expression then of unbelief in God, every expression of unbelief in Jesus is actually a radical, deep faith statement. People often say to, to me and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter how you believe in God or what you believe about God. All beliefs in God are equal. They have no idea how deeply theological such a statement is. Now, the problem is it's a deeply flawed theology because it assumes that that statement is superior to a statement of definitive belief about God. It's not that it isn't a statement that people can believe and make. It's the hypocrisy of the statement. It is as if the person is saying, I avoid theology, when in reality they are spouting theology. They have deeply held faith statements when they say there's no one way to God. That's a faith statement. They've rooted their faith in something other than revelation. Look, people say to me quite often, prove to me there is a God. Okay, so I, I mean, when I, I know when I'm, when I'm up against this, we're not going to win that battle. But I do tell them why I believe in God. I, 
I talk about the fact that I believe there's a creation, therefore there's a creator. But I speak more about the fact that I believe Jesus is the very Son of God who reveals the very heart of His Father, and that His resurrection, witnessed by over 500 people, is a historically accurate event, and my faith looks back to that reality and what He said that reality means. But you know what? Once I finish that, they'll say something like this. So you believe in faith, I believe in fact. Come on. And I'll say to him, okay, let's turn the question around. Prove to me there is no God. And they'll say, well, you can't see him and all these things. Then I say, well, aren't you basically saying to me the basis of your belief there is no God is your faith that there is no God? (laughs) Now, I'm not trying. If you're an atheist, I'm not going to win you today by this argument. But I'm trying to get you to realize that every person who says to me, I can't have faith, is actually having faith the entire time. It's just that what they've chosen to believe is different. Every person, their faith is formed from the time they're a child. What can I trust? What do I believe? What can I rely on? So, What you believe is always your choice. Come on, that's pretty important that you get that. Because you can't say, well, my parents this or my school that. No, what you believe is what you have decided is worthy of your trust. So, radical faith, again, rooted faith, according to the Bible, is also accompanied by a radical flaw. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So our formation of faith from our birth is dysfunctional to begin with. Now, now in verses 5 through 8, what it explains is that what we want to be is we want to be trees. And we want to be trees that have green leaves all the time and always bear fruit. That, that's the idea of a happy, a successful, and abundant life. In your mind, whether you're twisted or distorted in every way, there's something of a residual, a little bit of a memory implant of a garden you're supposed to be in. A memory trace of how it's supposed to be that God left there. And so every one of us, there's this longing to have to have a root system. Now, why does a tree have a root system? Well, there's a number of reasons, but one is without the root system, the tree cannot stabilize. It's not secure. But also, without a root system, it can't nourish itself. So the roots go down in order to stabilize the tree, but also to nourish the tree so the tree can have life. Here's what you have to look at, and here's what you need to understand from the Scriptures, is God always knows your root system. There are many people who say to me, I trust God, but really they don't trust God. They have an appearance, or they like to proclaim it, but their root system, which means their passion and their intensity, is not in God. It's in their job, their family, their marriage, getting married, finding a spouse. 
It's in, you know, their health. It's in all of these things. But, but one of the things that, that so many will say to me is I have this great trust of God, but they have no passion for God. See, if it's your root, it's your stabilizing, your anchor. There's an intensity to it. You see, it can only be your trust if it's your root. It's where you get nurtured. It's where you get nourished. Sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, hey, there's nothing wrong with pornography. I'm not hurting anybody. But listen, those who particularly are addicted to pornography are passionate about pornography. When they hurt, they go to pornography. When they're bored, they go to pornography. When they when they're just want to distract themselves or detour from reality, they go to pornography. So before even talking about how sexually immoral the whole thing is, unless you think me a prude, it's Sunday morning and I'm talking about pornography. <laughs> just think through this. If my roots are anchored in pornography... My passion, my intensity, my nourishment of soul is coming for pornography. Just the fact that I have rooted my life in a fantasy world is in itself enough to say, how did I get my roots there? How do I get nourishment there? Why have I let my passion go there? And anything and everything that you begin to draw from other than God twists you, distorts you, your view of the world, your view of other people, your view of relationship, your view of yourself. The Bible switches analogies here. It goes from tree to shrub. See, you were meant to be as tree, but what happens is when you don't have your roots in God, you become a shrub. But it's a very specific shrub. It's a shrub that's only in Palestine or in the Middle East. And it's a shrub that survives in drought and survives in the flood. But it's twisted and it's ugly and it's deformed and it looks like a shrub that just shouldn't exist. Because when there's water, it's never enough water. And when there's no water, it's just languishing in the depths of its lack of nourishment. And so the Bible says that when you have anchored your radical trust in deception, in sickness, in these things, it twists you, it deforms you. And no matter how much water you get, it will never be enough. And you will go through such drought seasons that your development will be deformed. Then it says, the blessed is the one whose trust is in the Lord. Now, it's really clear here. The Bible is very intentional. The wording is very intentional. It's not just making a repetition. It's saying, but it's not enough just to say, my trust is in the Lord. No, it doesn't stop there. It says, whose trust is the Lord. See, there are, there are a lot of us who kind of get, we get a little religious, we get a little bit more spiritual or whatever it is. We learn to pray a little bit and all these things, and we start saying, Lord, I trust you for my 
spouse. Lord, I trust you for my marriage. I trust you for my family, my job, my money, my health, my friends. I trust you for these things. But then suddenly God says, I'm going to take those things away from you. I'm going to put you in a sucky marriage. That's the Hebrew for it there. You know, I'm going to give you a wife that you go, how in the world did you ever give me that wife or that husband? I'm going to give you somebody who will leave you. I'm going to let you have what you want, and they're going to disappoint you, and they're going to betray you. Now you go, God, I trusted you for the right husband. I trusted you for my soulmate, and you let me down. I quit praying. I quit believing. You see, your trust was really in the answer, not in the one giving the answer. See, the one giving the answer is just the resource and your backup plan and your insurance and he's nothing more than the agent or personal assistant that you want to have because with all his power, he should be able to make it easier for you. But then when he touches those treasures and takes them away or reveals how desperately wicked and desperately sinful your heart is, then you're mad at him and say, I don't trust you anymore. See, this is radically different from saying, I don't just trust in you, Lord. You are, the, you are the trust itself, whose trust is the Lord. And this begins to work out in people's lives who want to go deeper with God. Now, you might shut me off right now, but this is the way that the Apostle Paul understood it. And for me, this became reality some years ago. I, I love to pray. I love to get answers in prayer. I love to see. I've seen five resurrections from the dead. You know, I've seen, I've seen arms grow because I prayed through prayer and stuff like that. I've seen all kinds of stuff. But when the Lord says, I want to be your trust, then he kind of cuts off things that he can do. And he makes it all about him and about you being all about him. About... 2012 or so, I was teaching all day at NIAC, and I was driving home, and I started, I started fainting. I started going unconscious, which isn't great in a car <laughs> when you're driving. Uh, but I, I, would, I realized I was near my primary care physician, which also meant the copayment would be less. And uh, So I pull in, no, no appointment, I went in, and I was just sinking, sinking, sinking. So for the next three years, they're trying to figure out what's wrong with me. And those of you who were here with me from 2012 to about 2015, maybe you didn't know, but I was constantly in pain. Eventually, they found out. It took them a long time to find out what was wrong. They kept saying I was fine, but eventually found out that the whole left side of my heart was blocked and that my right side was beginning to block, that the arteries were were you know, just not functioning anymore. And so sometimes I'd walk to the mailbox and I, I'd hurt for two hours afterwards, just, just a short walk. And while all that was going on, I don't know if you know this, but we went from two services to three to four. I was teaching all over South America, Africa, Middle East, Europe. I was still teaching at NIAC, ATS, and I finished the doctorate during that time but I was always in pain and my energy level was super duper low. Now, I'll tell you what I did as soon as I found out. I, I got people to pray. I got anointed. Matter of fact, I'm the pastor here. We had lots of healing services during that time and it was all for me. 
because I'm in charge. You understand what I'm saying? I, it wasn't, I mean, if I'm saying, Lord, I trust you for my healing, I was getting no healing. And so what I had to do, because I couldn't stop doing the assignments he'd given me, is I had to make him my trust, not my energy level, not my pain level, none of those other things. And so here's how the Paul, Apostle Paul works that out. He says, your grace is sufficient for my weakness. See, my weakness didn't go away, but his grace met my weakness. And then he says this, your strength is perfected in my weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. And I can look back over these years and say, God, how did I physically do that? I could not do that because when the blockage was revealed, I had to have quadruple bypass surgery. And I'm traveling, I'm doing all those things. I didn't die, I got it all done. It was his grace sufficient in my weakness. You see, if all you trust Him for is what you really treasure, He'll have to say no to your treasure. He can't resource that idolatry. He can't make your idol successful. But if He is your trust, then even when it seems like you're falling apart, He has all the grace that matters to make not only... You go through the trial, but to stay green-leaved in the trial and fruit that you cannot imagine that takes place, not because of your smarts or your willpower or whatever it is, but because no longer is it about trusting in the Lord. He is your trust. Are you hearing me? Well, listen to me on this. If you say, well, okay, Mike, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work smarter. I'm going to choose better. Then I give myself permission to slap you in Jesus' name. That's not repentance. That's more self-salvation. You see, the only cure for our heart is that we get uprooted from where we were, from what we trusted in, what we believed in, what we feared. We get uprooted and we get planted by the living water. See, here's the deal. Trees don't plant themselves. Somebody else has to plant them. This is why you must be born again. This is why it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why we don't glory in anything good that comes from us because I didn't plant myself. He planted me. But here's the beauty. Once He plants you, He doesn't plant you so that the drought affects you or so that the floods affect you. He plants you so that there's a constant source of water for you. You are stabilized and nourished at the same time. And the trials of life and the pain that He shares with you and even the injustice that you go through becomes a deepening of your roots. I love to travel in the Middle East. I especially love the country of Jordan. But when you're driving, you just see nothing but desert. Just nothing but this, this, this kind of white and off-white colors. And then all of a sudden, you'll drive up, and there'll be an orchard of olive trees. And they're all bright, beautiful green, loaded with olives. And all around it is nothing but desert. And you go, how could that be? And they say... 
because the roots have gone down and found a water source that has nothing to do with the weather. So even though everything else is desert and dry, yet these olive trees in the middle of the desert are green and full of olives because they have found a source that they trust that stabilizes them and nourishes them. This is what our God is asking of you. St. Augustine, who was a great theologian and writer, he said this, our problem is that that disease in our heart is not, my, not your will, God, but mine. And as long as we have that not your will, but mine problem, he says we have a radical disease that needs a radical cure. So this is what I'll cl- close with. Are you hearing me today? Verse 14 of chapter 17, Heal me, O Lord and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Look, if you get a splinter in your hand, or even if you cut your hand, you're not going to go, oh God, heal me. You're going to watch as it heals itself. You see, a wound is nothing more than something that's going to be recreated, regenerated. You're going to watch every day as the skin comes back together, as it gets better, as the pain goes away. The only time that we pray for intervention is when we realize that what we have is terminal. What we have is is life-threatening. I mean, if you have drunk poison, you go, oh God, intervene. If you get a a diagnosis of terminal cancer, you're not going to go, oh, I'm just going to wait and see how things turn out. Then you're going to go, heal me. You see, it's when you realize you have soul cancer It's when you realize you've drunk the poison. Then you're going to say, God, intervene. Because I can't do it for myself. This isn't going to heal itself. This isn't going to save itself. It's an act of humility, but it's also an act of realism that says, what I have, I can't get rid of. I need you to get rid of it. But here's the thing I love about this passage. He says, heal me and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. In other words, there's humility which God always responds to. God gives grace to the humble though He will oppose the proud. And He will exalt you at the proper time if you humble yourself. But I love that there's humility here with confidence. I will be healed. I will be saved. I see Christians all over America and I lead prayer gatherings all over America. You know what they do? Oh, heal me, heal me, heal me, heal me. But they never say, I will be healed. And they never say, I will be saved. You see, you got to have both. Because it's not trust if you don't believe you'll overcome. It's not trust if you don't think you already have the victory. It's when you sit there, oh, heal me, heal me, and then I'll believe. No, I believe. You're my healer. I believe. And it's believing, you see, it gives you the confidence. Because having been uprooted from being nothing more than a shrub, now you're a tree, friends, planted by the living water. Come on. Think about this with me. Humility, heal me. Confidence, I will be healed. I will be healed. Look, any place in your life where you're struggling to trust God, 
Any place of disobedience in your life is a love issue, not a behavior issue. The behavior is just a symptom. That place isn't where God's saying, oh, please, would you show more willpower? No, it's a place where it's God saying, that's where my love needs to heal you. That's a place where my love needs to save you. He never brings up your brokenness to embarrass you. He brings it up to heal and save you. So whatever you're going through today, God has not forsaken you. God is in the midst of even your unexplained pain or the injustices that you're going through or the unfairness or the surprises. He's in it, but He's longing for you to realize you need divine intervention. Heal me and I shall be healed. Can I, I'll just close with this. When we got the diagnosis that Lisa had cancer, I didn't say, oh, this is going to work out fine. I went in the hallway at that hospital before I called anybody or talked to anybody and I said, heal her, Lord. Heal her. Save her. Because I knew that what she had could kill her. And I wasn't going to leave it just to doctors or hospitals or medicine or any other thing. You understand? Not that he didn't use all of those means in miraculous ways. But I knew the one that I needed to intervene was the one who is her healer, who is her Savior. And you know, when I prayed that prayer, a confidence came in me. I knew we had a fight. I knew we had a long way to go. But a confidence came in me and a peace came over me. Because there's, there's nobody I love like her. And when I had that confidence, I could pray differently because I wasn't afraid. Now, I, I, some of the things she's gone through has made me afraid. I'm not without fear. But there was this underlying thing that said, I trust you. Not just for her healing, I trust you. That if I have her or I lose her, I have you. And until you have him, you don't really have anything else. It's all nothing but a shrub. And you were meant to be a tree that has the ever, evergreen leaves and always bears fruit. Will you stand with me? Would you close your eyes? Would you let the Lord speak to you in this? I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend, but the Lord keeps showing me shrubs on your faces. Because you won't go deep with Him. You want the Lord, you want prayer so that the things you really want will happen. Or so you have power over the things you really don't want. But today He's asking, will you let me plant you deep in the water? In the water that isn't affected by weather. And uh, you have to have the humility to say, Lord, I am broken. And it's okay if you say to him, Lord, I'm just as broken as Mike is. Because we are that broken. We are so evil. Christ had to die for us. But we are so loved that Christ chose to die for us. So I'm asking today for both humility and confidence to come forth in you. So would you say these words with me? Lord, I open up my heart to you. 
All the things I've trusted in. Anything that I've found roots in. I ask you to uproot them right now. If it's not you, it's not my root. You're my passion. My intensity belongs to you. I don't just trust in you, but you are my trust. Now this is where I want that trust to come forth. We say this. And it could be that you're coming to Jesus for the first time. That would be great. Most of us have come to Jesus before. And He's showing us where we don't trust Him. Where we haven't yielded to Him. So in that place, whether it's your sexuality, your marriage, your finances, your health, whatever it is, that which would only distort and twist you, would you say to Him this, heal me. Say it again, heal me. Look at that place of wounding and say, heal me. Save me. Lord loves it when you humble yourself. But He loves it even more when humility is accompanied by faith, by confidence. So would you say this with me? This day, I believe and declare. Heal me and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. In Jesus' name. Thanks for being here today. God bless you. Would you hug a bunch of people before you go home today?